What's going on, coaches? Want to first just give a big shout out uh, to Coach Walls. They are state champions down there, up there in Iowa. Uh, want to give a big shout out to them, Ankeny Hawks, uh, over in Ankeny, Iowa. Uh, congratulations, Coach Walls. It's Coach Walls' third state championship. It's the first state championship for Ankeny since the big split. Uh, so big congratulations to him. Uh, obviously, all year they threw it around and ran the ball well. He said in the state championship. Uh, they, they didn't need to throw it very often. They were uh, very, very good at running the ball in the state championship, won by uh, by a very big margin. So big shout-out to Coach Walls. Uh, our season at Broken Arrow is over as well, so we are about to dive headfirst back into RTP, look for some really cool things to come here in the near future, get back in the dojo, get to working on some new things that we've been excited about all season to, to really get into now in the off season. So just again, big shout-out, congratulations, Coach Walls, on your third one. Uh, if you guys need anything from us, go visit runthepower.com. This episode of the RTP podcast is brought to you by our guys over at Just Play. The team at Just Play hooked us up with their product, as you guys know, uh, and it's been a game changer for us. If you've seen us on Twitter or uh, have talked to us about this at all. We obviously especially love the playbook tools that allow us to create our favorite blocking schemes, as you guys know, power, counter, inside zone, pin and pull, uh, and formation so we can save time and be more productive. That's the biggest part. Saves time on defenses, saves time on, on inputting offensive uh, formations, and then easy to draw the play out. Just Play is a limited time offer for RTP listeners only. Get my Just Play Pro for $120, which is an unbelievable $60 off the normal list price. Uh, this offer has been extended uh, and won't last forever. You can get this deal at JustPlaySolutions.com RTP. The best playbook tool on the market at JustPlaySolutions.com RTP. Don't wait, go do it today. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Team Builder. Team Builder provides strength and conditioning software to high schools around the country. Whether you write your own programs, have a full-time strength coach, or need training programs, Team Builder can make your program better. Right now, Team Builder is offering a 10-week off-season football training program with a two-a-day speed and agility program. This template even comes with videos from some of the top SEC strength coaches that will show you how to run your weight room. Visit their website and enter the code RTP to get the off-season football training template and start your 14-day completely free trial at teambuilder.com. Again, enter code RTP at teambuilder.com, which is team, B-U-I-L-D-R.com. On this episode of RTP, we talk with Joel Rodriguez. Coach Rodriguez is the O-line coach at Florida International University in Miami, Florida. Listen as we talk with Coach Rodriguez about his national championship winning playing career at the U, along with some awesome insight into the Joe Moorhead offensive system while coaching for Moorhead at Fordham University, setting several offensive records in 2013. You can follow Coach Rodriguez on Twitter at Coach underscore J underscore Rod. Hope you guys enjoy. funny it's kind of come full circle a little bit uh, at least recently but um so uh joel rodriguez obviously um uh born and raised in in south florida in the general miami area not necessarily in the city of miami but uh, all around it pretty much i've lived in uh, the southern part of the city northern part of the city the county and whatnot um was very fortunate to play um at the university of miami as an offensive lineman i was there from uh, 2000 through uh, 2004 was part of a national championship team and um, was part of a couple other conference championship teams and, uh, you know, uh, BCS Bowl game winners and whatnot. Um, and then was uh, even more fortunate after that that I, uh, I, I conned the, uh, the Tennessee Titans into giving me a paycheck for about a year and a half or so. Uh, <laughs> so I thank God for Mike Munchak. I think him and Jeff Fisher felt sorry for me, to be honest with you. I kept around for, for, for a little bit of time. But, um, but you know, I had, a, I had a short cup of coffee for – a year and a half in the NFL with Tennessee, uh, NFL Europe in between um, years one and years two, which is really neat experience as well. Uh, met a bunch of really, really, you know, great teammates, good people, good coaches. I mean, just, it was awesome, you know. Um, and then eventually, like it does for all of us, you know, the ball deflated for us and it was time to hang them up. And um, I, I, and here, here's a funny thing. I, I kind of knew what coaching was about. I was very, very, very close with my high school coach. I was very close with my 
college um, offensive line coach, uh, my college, you know, O-line GAs and tight end coaches and whatnot. Um, so I kind of knew what the lifestyle was about, you know, the moving around and the job insecurity and so on and so forth. Um, so I didn't want to do it at all. Um, and oh, really? I, yeah, I, I kind of fought it tooth and nail. I was going to be a police officer. That was kind of my, or either that or, or a federal agent. That was kind of my, mm. nice. my original career path. Um, I had an uncle that was an FBI and he was going to, pull some strings for me or whatnot. So, um, but, you know, it was that kind of like, you know, the first, first few weeks, you first, you know, kind of hang them up and, you know, the, the season's still ongoing and you don't really have, you know, a career path or a job or anything going on at, at the moment. You know, I was kind of bored on my skull, to be honest with you. And um, my high school coach said, hey, why don't you come on by and um, just come practice, help out. Uh, I, I think I had just started subbing at the school. So I was kind of around anyways, you know, working out and everything. Um, and uh, so I did that. And that's where the bug bit me, you know, and I haven't really done, any, haven't really done anything or thought doing anything really pretty much ever since then. Um, so I coached high school football at, uh, at my old high school at Pace High down here in Miami for the remainder of that season and that spring. And then I was very fortunate that I got an opportunity to go to Ole Miss in uh, 2007, that summer, or actually late that spring, um, as a um, – I figure what my title was. So this is back when you only had, you know, two GAs and everything and, and the staffs were a lot smaller. So I forgot what the, it was like, the, it was like an intern job or something, I think. And uh, I was there for two days and the, on the field, one of the on the field GAs um, got a job. So he left. And this was like, this was like maybe two weeks before training camp started. So I literally was, was uh, um, working in college football for about less than a month or two and I got a chance to move on the field and, be, and become a graduate assistant and the way that the staff was shake, shaking up at Ole Miss at the time the offensive GA on top of doing all the GA responsibility stuff also kind of had a, had a pretty major role in, in, in helping with tight ends um, so I got a chance to you know run meetings you know run drills you know um, you know kind of coach on the run um, in the SEC which is awesome you know, at a very young age and I was not ready for it uh, we usually aren't for our, those first couple opportunities, you know. Um, but it was a great learning experience. And, you know, Coach Ogeron and Coach Dan Warner and Art Hill and Tony Hughes and those guys on, on staff and offense were awesome. Frank Wilson was was our running back coach and Hugh Freeze is our receivers coach. I mean, really good staff in hindsight. Um, so uh, from there, I got my first full-time job at, at the FCS level at Bryant University, which is a, uh, had just moved up from Division II to, to FCS um, in Rhode Island in New England. Um, was there for four years. Um, we had a pretty good run. Um, my last year there, our running back actually led the country um, in rushing yards, which is pretty awesome. Um, so I was there for four years, and then from there I got hired at uh, in twenty in two thousand and twelve at Fordham University, which is a, you know a little better, bigger SES job. Um, mm -hmm. I was there with Coach Moorhead. I was uh, on his initial staff. We had, I had met Joe um, via recruiting and whatnot. He was at UConn. I was at Bryant. So you know we both recruited the, the Maryland DC area. Uh, so essentially all the guys were like kind of like down the line guys for him were like kind of like my top guys. So we worked camp together and stuff and everything kind of had a good relationship. So worked with him for three and a half years. Um, we had a really good run at Fordham. Uh, honestly, probably some of my fondest memories in terms of staff camaraderie and just the way that, you know, the dynamic in the staff room and sideline interaction and whatnot was probably from Fordham with Joe. Joe was an incredible boss and a great friend to this day, really. Um, and then went, uh, came back home. And uh, joined the staff at the University of Miami um, in the summer of 2015. And this is where it's really crazy. I, I, I think I had two or three different job titles, but I survived three different head coaching changes at Miami. It's crazy. Jeez. Yeah, I, was, I got hired by Al Golden. And he, got, he gets fired maybe like three months later. And I'm, you know, kind of like, oh, great, here we go. You know, I just you know, got, my, got my first foot in the door at the FBS level. You know, right. And then um, they bring in Mark Rake, which is, a, which is a huge blessing. I mean, Mark is like, I mean, everything you hear about Coach Rick is like the reality is it's so much better than what you hear about him. You know, it just he's such a phenomenal human being and a great person and a man of God and just everything. I mean, he, he he walks the walk, he really does. Um, and obviously, he had a really good run here. And then you know, just kind of you know, ran out of gas at the end. And um, so then they promote Ma uh, Coach Diaz, Manny, uh, to be the head coach. And, and I had worked under Manny on defense the previous year and a half. Um, so I was very fortunate to kind of stay on with with, with Manny. Um, and then, you know, obviously I, I mentioned earlier, it kind of comes full circle because now I got my first, you know, FBS, you know, full-time job, um, uh, at FIU with, uh, the guy who 
was my head coach who recruited me to play in Miami, which is Coach, coach Davis. Um, so I, I've known Coach Davis since I was, I was probably 16 years old, I think. Um, so it's it's a really neat opportunity. It's cool, and, and there's a lot of a lot of former like Miami connections. I'm sure you guys probably know this on staff. Like, I mean, Coach Davis obviously, and I mean our trainer was at Miami. Our swing coach Andrew Schwartz, he came from Miami. They were there uh, under Coach Davis as well. And um, Kennard Lang played at Miami a little bit before me. Damon Lewis, who just left, actually joined the staff at Seattle, um, was on staff. He was a senior. I was a freshman here. Um, Trying to think who else, um, you know, Drew Davis, who's Coach Davis' son, coaches our tight ends, and hell, Drew was a little fiber running around at practice playing catch with us when I was when I was still playing at Miami, you know, when Coach <laughs> Davis was still there. So, um, a, a lot of really cool, um, you know, long-term relationships that have kind of, you know, are, are getting rekindled now that I'm back uh, on Coach Davis' staff. So, did you say when you were at Miami just a, a few years back that you were on the on the defensive side? I was, yeah. So, so, so was, how does that how does that work for an offensive line guy? And I know everyone talks so highly of it and how much better of a coach you get. But me, I played college not at not at Miami, but at Houston, a little bit smaller. But at college, an offensive lineman my whole life. Dad's an offensive line coach, and and coaching anything else, I mean, sounds foreign and and sounds scary and and sounds you know almost boring to me because I love offensive line so much. How'd that go for you? Because I'm assuming you, you were kind of, you know, that same way offensive lineman your, your whole life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it was actually really, really, it was, I, I jumped into it head first because, you know, um, the role that I, you know, the role I was filling on, on the offensive side of the ball um, just wasn't, you know, I wanted more. I wanted more than all reality, you know, and I wanted to learn more and I wanted to, to, to be challenged more. And, and I really respected from afar, you know, what coach Diaz was doing on that side of the ball. I mean, that, I think in 2016 was our, was our, was coach, you know, coach Diaz's first year here. And, you know, it wasn't the historical defenses that he had in like in 2018 and 2019 or 2018, especially. Um, but, you know, it was, it was a huge difference from what it was the previous couple of years on the previous staff and just the energy and the passion and the physicality in which that side of the ball was playing with, um, I mean, you could see it was infectious, you know, on the sidelines in the locker room and not being in the meeting room and not knowing what was going on. It was almost like I had to sneak around it really, you know? Um, so, you know, I, and I talk, it's funny because the year that I moved to defense, probably my second best friend, friend in this profession, kind of Chad Walker, who coaches uh, for the Atlanta Falcons. Now, I don't know what Chad's title is. He's like a defensive assistant or whatnot. Um, but Chad had, Chad did the opposite. Chad had been on defense his whole life. You know, Chad worked under Nick Saban at, at LSU and the Dolphins. He worked under Tom Capers at Miami. He worked under, you know, Bob Oklahoma and so on and so forth. And he had been, he had just left. He had been in Atlanta under, under Coach Quinn, had left to take his first FBS full-time job coaching um, the outside backers for Brett Bielema at Arkansas. That was Brett's last year. So Brett gets, you know, they get, the second's fired. And Chad has to come, Chad gets very fortunate, gets a job to come back to Atlanta, but it was on offense. And we both kind of had similar jobs. We were kind of like spies. You know, it was like, hey, you know, uh, you know, work, work on the other ball, but tell us kind of what they're doing. You know, how could we attack what they're doing? How are they going to try and attack us? And so on and so forth. It's really, really unique. And but it's funny because when I called them and asked them for advice, because like Chad's one of those guys that I call and ask for advice all the time, uh, you know, in terms of jobs and whatnot, he was about to call me the next day for the same, for the same, same deal. So it's kind of interesting how it worked out. Um, but it was a really good experience. It was awesome. I, I cannot thank Coach Diaz and Coach Kuligowski and Coach Banda and Coach Rump, those guys, Coach Simpson, uh, who was our D-line coach, who was also at Atlanta, um, because they, you know, although I wasn't part of, you know, like the original defensive staff, I wasn't really a defensive guy per se. They, you know, welcomed with open, open arms, and they legitimately gave me assignments, and they gave me input. And when I spoke, you know, not that, like, you know, the game plan was, you know, revolving on what I said or anything it's not the case but it was legitimately used in the game plan process it was it was you know told to the players and everything and I felt like I had a voice you know um, and it was really interesting because the one thing I got I you know as, as much as learning kind of how defensive guys look at stuff and kind of you know what scares them or whatnot it was really interesting to me to see a lot of the stuff that we do on offense that we think wow this really is going to hamstring the defense really going to give them hemorrhoid really going to kind of you know you know, kind of, you know, be a pain in the, a pain in the butt for them. Mm -hmm. A lot of that stuff really wasn't, you know, and then a lot of stuff <laughs> didn't necessarily, um, 
you know, would be a problem, you know, formationally or whatnot, um, really was. Um, so it's just interesting to kind of see, and, and maybe it's just that defense, you know, I don't know. Um, but, but it was interesting to see, you know, the, the dynamic of, you know, what, what really kind of causes defenses issues and kind of how they look at certain things, how they plan for certain things. Now, were you being on the defensive side, did you at all get to work with like the scout team offensive line or were you doing purely all defensive stuff at the entire time? It was mainly purely defensive stuff. Too, I gotcha. Cause, cause the other, the other, um, my main responsibility, honestly, during practice was I was also our pro liaison. So, so mm-hmm. and, and at Miami, you're lucky you got, you got scouts are damn near every day, you know, get yeah, right. to guys that go scout. So I was, I was, um, I was 10 to those guys for, for most of them, which is also a very cool experience too. Coach question. How many times did you turn on or uh, try on the turnover chain? And were you in charge of the turnover chain? <laughs> I'm very proud to say I never once put the turnover chain on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I, I, that was, yeah, the first year we, that we, that, that the defense staff brought, they, you know, Manny brought it out. I was kind of the guy that was in charge of making sure that it got on the right person. Uh, and then it got back to the box <laughs> afterwards, um, which I'll tell you, it's interesting, you know, some like inadvertent, like, reactions to like role changes you know so in 20 I think it was 2018 that they changed the role about the headsets right we're only only full-time coaches and GAs and and, and the one QC or whatever could have it on the sidelines so I, I wasn't one of the guys with headset on so all of a sudden like imagine I mean, you guys are just on the sidelines when a turnover happens I mean it's pandemonium and you have no idea like you know I'm just standing way behind the ball I have no idea like who, I'm I'm running to the back of the, the bench going into that box to get the get the chain out and I'm like looking up at the jumbotron trying to see like who actually got the turnover and sometimes like the camera's the wrong guy I don't even know so I mean I literally had to have like someone a spotter come tell me hey it's Jaquan Johnson hey it's you know Redwine or whatever to get the right guy I think I might have actually put on the wrong guy at least once that year to be honest with you um but well that's all that's that's pretty that's a pretty good percentage (laughs) yeah well we had a good spotter thank god (laughs) I thought it was like seriously one of the coolest things I'd ever seen. You know, I know there's some the, the purists and the guys that would bellyache about it. I can't remember what game I was watching, but the first time I saw it, I'm like, that's creative. That's cool. It's kids having fun. You know, it's coaches having fun. To me, it just was a cool, cool thing that like galvanized that whole stadium and that whole sideline. I think it was, it was, and I've said this before, I think it was, um, it was like a, almost like a, 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 for lack of a, cliche quote a perfect storm you know because it was you know first of all it's it, it's big it's heavy it's loud it's gaudy it's kind of, it's miami right i mean it's kind of what we are here in miami you know and especially at that at university of miami right it's kind of like what that program is kind of built on you know at least from a from a from a looking at from the outside in standpoint you know um and it and, and we were good that year i mean that was the year that we ended up you know at one point we we're ranked second in the country for it's like week 11 or something you know mm-hmm. um, so and we got a lot of turnovers. So just everything, you know, we were winning. We were forcing a lot of turnovers, you know, and it just it, everything kind of aligned on that side of the ball on that team for that. You know, it was it was a really really kind of aligning of the stars, you know, for for that, you know, for that whole like phenomenon to catch fire. Coach, you know, now obviously coaching the offensive line and and the thing that I would think would be awesome for your players, at least uh, it would be for. For me, it's it is for me. Just talking to you is like you said, a, a national champion. It you know, is there any time? Is there anything that you saw the national championship year um, that differed from other years that you impart to your kids, or was it just hey, we had a really good team that year, and and the other years, you know, we were good, but just weren't you know things didn't fall for us. You know, is our kids picking your brain? You know about hey, how, what was that national championship? you're like what was your leadership like on the offensive line from from different guys what are some things that you that you tell your guys which I'm sure are asking you all the time because uh, everyone wants to know those stories everyone wants to know how to be great uh, and, and your team was uh, the best that one year yeah we're pretty good um you know I haven't really got a chance to to um to talk enough in my opinion about that to at least to our guys here at FIU um mm-hmm. 
because you know, I mean, you get hired in January and the number one goal is recruiting, right? So you're kind of, you know, I get hired I'm on the road like three days later, pretty much, you know what I mean? Um, mm. and, and then you get back and, you know, okay, so now you're trying to like, you know, learn the playbook, learn your players, learn what's going on. So, you know, you, you're, you're, you're having meetings, but maybe once or twice a week at that point, you know, in terms of like watching tape and talking ball and whatnot with the guys. Um, and then, and then, you know, I was really looking forward to spring practice to kind of, you know, really spend a lot of time with the guys, you know, on the field in between drills, you know, water breaks, you know, on top of coaching them and teaching them, just kind of like interacting with them more, you know. Uh, and we, we had one occasional meal before this whole thing happened. It was, you know, we took a week at one to have some chicken wings and burgers and stuff, but just not enough time, you know. So I haven't had a chance, like the little bit of time we've had so far um, to spend time together as, as a unit or, you know, in small groups, it's been more ball than anything else to this point. Yeah. So I am looking forward to, to getting back um, for that, just for the, just to, to just kind of be a, a guy with the guys, you know what I mean? Um, and bond with them more because I think that's a huge, a huge thing. But teams, uh, uh, groups I've had in the past, you know, like whether it be at Miami or at, at, at um, Fordham or, or um, Brian or Ole Miss, you know, because of the, the time, you know, they felt more comfortable to ask those kind of questions, and that kind of stuff, you know. Um, and I've shared as much as I possibly can with those guys. And one thing that I think, sets that group apart and and when I say that group it's not just the O-line in that group because for for about a two or three year snapshot there from like you know mid 2000 or so to about you know the end of 2002 um which was kind of when we were on that run we won like 30 someone games in a row whatever it was um that was about as close knit locker room as I've ever been a part of before um, and it wasn't like, you know, obviously not every single person in the, in the locker room was like best friends. It's not reality, right? I mean, sometimes you have, you know, age barriers and, you know, position barriers and, you know, guys are going to have issues, you know, over girls or whatever that happens. Right. You know, but, but for, for the most part from player one to player 105 or 110, or whatever it was, it was the closest team I ever, I've ever been around before. And the team changed over the course of that two, three years, but the bulk of the core was there you know, for, for that whole run. Um, and when I say close, you know, it wasn't like we all hung out together, you know, 105 guys every single weekend at the same bar. That's not reality. But it was the ability for, you know, like an offensive lineman to walk across the locker room and bust chops on a DB or a receiver or a running back or a defensive lineman or somebody that, you know, that you normally, you know, you don't travel with, or you don't room with or whatever. And, and and say some stuff to those guys that you know if you didn't know them if you were uh, like if you bugged the locker room it might be like some of the most bigoted or racist or whatever stuff ever said um, but everyone knew it was coming from a place of love and and, and respect and just just kind of like you know just kind of busting chops and that guys would just, and, and, and that guy would just fire back at you and it was just constant back and forth and there was a mutual respect and love it's kind of when you have I mean I have a, I don't have I don't have brothers but I have a sister. And it's kind of like when you, you know, bust your brother or, you know, or your siblings chops, um, you can say some stuff to your siblings that no one else can, you know, and they don't get mad at you for it because they know that it's, it comes right. from respect and love. And I literally felt like, of course, the old line had that, but I think a lot of old lines have that. Um, what made that team special was that you, you had it from lineman to defensive back from quarterback to defensive lineman, you know, um, as a whole, not every, not every single, not every single person, obviously. Not all 105 guys had the same connection, um, but a, a higher majority of those 105 guys, a higher percentage of those of those that whole locker room had it than any team I've ever been around before, uh, you know, or since. That, Coach, so, that so team, what's, go ahead, Brady. I just say that team in the Rose Bowl. I was actually at that game. Uh, I, I I went to Nebraska, so uh, I went to the Rose Bowl and, and watched it. But that team you guys had in 2001. That's that's yeah. the best college. That's the best college football team I've ever seen, hands down. It, it was uh, it was really. Uh, I tell you what, on my part, it was phenomenal timing as far as like when to get there. I got there in two thousand, right when we were with the, the program. I really had its stride, really. You know, uh, we lost week two in two thousand at Washington by one score, and then didn't lose again until the bowl game two years later, mm-hmm. uh, or really almost three years later in terms of like you know seasons. Um, so it was, um, yeah, it was a really good, and the, the thing that's really unique about, about, and I tell people this all the time, especially when I was at Miami, I would say this all the time, you know, I've, I've heard this phrase used before and it really 
bothers me and gets under my skin, to be honest with you. I heard somebody, uh, and I won't say who it is, but I heard somebody once refer to th that team, especially that one team, the own one team, um, as a monopoly of talent. Um, and in hindsight, it was. Yes, obviously it was, it was, you know, you had multiple NFL future Hall of Famers and all pros and so on and so forth who were backups on that team, okay? Um, but nobody who was putting that team together or was a part of that team coming together, I think would have ever forecasted it being that much of a monopoly, that much of a, of a monopoly of that much talent. I think what made that, that team in that era so special for that program was, you know, yes, there were some guys who were the quote unquote five stars or the high recruited guys that played like it. I mean, Andre Johnson was a five star guy and he played like it, right? You know, um, you know, Wilson Gay, he was a five star guy and he played like it. Vernon Carey was a five star guy and he played like it. But at the same, but on, on the same note, I mean, you know, if Jonathan Vilma didn't go to Miami, he was going to probably go to Central Florida and not, not the UCF we know now, the UCF of like 2000, right? Which is like not very good. Um, you know, if, if Jeremy Shockey doesn't come to, to Miami, I don't know where the hell he goes, but it's not anywhere of note. Right. You know? um, if Brian McKinney doesn't go to Miami, he goes to I don't know, probably Rutgers at, at time, which was like, you know, a, a two-win team, um, you know. So there were a lot of guys who were either under-recruited, late bloomers, you know, whatever it was. But, but, but you know, it's a huge testament to Coach Davis and Pete Garcia, who was kind of like the, the player personal guy for that team back then. Um, to kind of see something in those guys and put them together and then develop them and build them up and, and put them in the right position to win. But, you know, but it was not a monopoly of talent. I mean, it was like you signed the most five stars. It was not the case at all. So, Coach, my kind of question with that is, is you've played on teams like that and you've coached teams that, um, you know, like at Miami as a coach or as a player, is a team that everyone expects to be national champions. Um, you know, that, that's the goal before the year. Be national champions, and, and they've had a bunch of people that have come before them that have done it. And so they've got some people to look to. They've got teams there to look to. Um, and every year their expectation is, I'm sure conference is in there somewhere, but the big expectation is win a national championship. Um, being on a team in college where I was at, at Houston, um, you know, the goal was never win a national championship because – we basically knew we were, you know, never going to get, even if we went undefeated, beat everyone by 50, we were probably not going to be invited to, to be in a national championship. And we weren't going to beat everyone by 50 and go undefeated. But what is, is there a difference in, in how those teams uh, approach the season? Or is there a difference in, in mindset when you're coaching or playing for a team that has national championship you know, Division One national championship goals, uh, as opposed to some of the other programs that you've been at. That it, that you know, even if you they do want to be national champions, maybe that that school hasn't done it yet, or has no one through the program that that has done it at that program. Um, it's, a, it's a good question. I to me, no. I don't. I think the answer is no because even when we were playing at Miami or coaching at Miami, when we were when that was kind of like the goal, um, I don't know that it was ever truly stated as a goal, like, hey, like if we don't win the championship, it's a, it's a, it's a you know, the, the year's a failure or whatnot. Now, there may have been people that thought that, you know, and it might have been talked about in small groups, but it wasn't a program-wide thing. Um, and this is something like that, that uh, I got to give, really honestly, Joe Moorhead credit for at Fordham because, you know, he has – I'm not sure if he still has these, the same kind of like uh, like these pillars kind of, you know, in terms of like the, uh, how, how he runs the program and goals and whatnot. But one of his pillars of this program um, for every player and coach or everyone in, 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 the, in the program is, a, uh, is, is called productivity. And what that means, is, and the way he describes it is, that means be the best version of you and that you can possibly be. So for example, if you are a, you know, if you are a B student, then don't get, then don't get freaking C's, get B's, right? Right. If you are, but if you're a C student, then, then fight your butt off and get C's, right? If you're an all-conference player, you got to play at an all-conference level, right? And then if you do that, you know, from one to 105, you know, in terms of the players, obviously staff do the same thing, then I think that you'll be very happy with where you are, where you are at the end of the season. You know, I'm like you right now, right? Like, I don't know, you know, this, this is my first year at FIU, but, you know, I'm, I'm a realist. I don't know that even if you go, 
12 and 0 this year and beat everybody by, you know, multiple scores that we're going to get an invite to. Right. The, the, you know, the final game is the final four. I don't know. I mean, they, you looked at UCF a couple years ago, they were kind of in the same boat and they didn't, they, they got snubbed. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, but, I, but I guarantee you that, you know, 30 years from now, those coaches and players that were on that UCF team are going to probably be very, very content and happy with, with, with their with their lot in terms of where they were that year because they kind of maximized their potential. You know, they were they were overly productive, and you know, so for us, you know, at FIU, for example, you know, hey, if, if we if, if we look back in, in, around Christmas time and we've won a conference USA championship and we've you know at least been you know ranked and been in the competition for you know, a year or six bowl game or something that I think that's that, that's a pretty that's a pretty huge accomplishment for FIU you know what I mean um, so but I don't think you coached up players any different or uh, demand any less of them because you know they're not expected to win a championship you know with a national championship I don't, I don't think so at all. Coach, you've mentioned, you know, Coach Moorhead a, a couple of times, and, and I'm fascinated by, you know, a lot of his offensive prowess, you know, knowing him from Penn State days, but knowing even, you know, what he'd done at, at Fordham, you guys have put together, you know, one of the more explosive offenses that FCS had ever seen, you know, throwing for five grand and rushing for, you know, well over 2,000. What are some of the hallmarks kind of of his offense? And you saw a lot of his fingerprints, you know, on the, the LSU program too, because Joe Brady was kind of a, a protege of his as well. You know, what are some of his blueprints and hallmarks for his explosive offenses? Cause he's done it at every level now. I think it's, it's, um, it's, the, it's having a identity is number one, right. And, and not, not losing yourself and not losing who you are and what you do well, just to have a lot of plays and, and be able to look at at clinics in all reality. And, and we, and we would talk about that a lot. So, you know, Joe's, Joe's offense, if you, if you were to break it down, I mean, I, I have those call sheets. Uh, I don't think we ever carried more than six or seven formations into a game plan. I'm talking about, like, you know, first, second down stuff. Um, and, and, and I mean, like, that's it. Like, there is no, like, conversation. There is no, like, hey, that's, let's wiggle in one more. Like, let's condense the formation. That's a whole, that's a whole different formation. I mean, there are six to seven at most formations, right? And then within that, there's only going to be, you know, probably six – to seven at most runs per formation, and then you know maybe ten throws per formation. That includes you know play action and movements and that kind of stuff, and drop, as well as dropbacks. Um, so you know you get to maximize your reps in practice. Your kids get really, really good and really comfortable at kind of what your staples are. And you know because we all say it every single year, right? You go back and look at you know what you do well when you, when you watch your cutups and your self scout at the end of the season and. We always have those kind of one-hit wonders. Oh, man, we know we saw so-and-so run this against this team and look really good. And we didn't really do it. We can kind of manufacture it. And then you run it, and you run it three or four times in a game, and you, you, get, st- you get stuffed, you get sacked once, TFL once, and a fumble once. Like, oh, why did I call that, you know? Um, and because <laughs> of reality, those are three or four more reps you should have called whatever split zone or one-back power or, you know, whatever your, your, your kind of trademarks are. Um, and I give Joe a lot of credit. Joe, at least when I was with him, he was amazing about never – losing sight of, you know, the tighter the game plan, the better, you know, the more comfortable our guys are going to be. And I really felt like, and, and uh, this is probably one staple I would say of every good team I've been a part of, would be as a player or coach, I feel like if your kids, if you pull your 11 starters in offense or defense and you say, hey, it's, you know, take any, any critical situation in the game. Hey, it's third and goal to win the game on the one-yard line or it's third and short, we got to convert to ice the game, right, okay? Or it's third and six, we got to throw the ball one time in the end zone to win the game, you know, whatever it may be. Um, if you were to pull your 11 guys, on defense, obviously, the same thing. If you were to pull your top 11, 11, 12, 15 guys, if you got more than six different answers, you don't have an identity in offense or defense. And you, and that, that team is probably not very good, in my opinion. Uh, and the teams I've been around that I've struggled before, that's always been, always been a common theme. And the teams that have been around that are really good, I mean, you would get probably 80% or more consensus as to, hey, what are we going to call on third and one, third and six, third and goal, you know, um, you know, coming out, you know, whatever it is, right? You know, one play to win a game. Um, and, and I think that that's probably Joe's the best I've ever been around as, uh, on offense. I think Manny's probably similar on defense in terms of the kids felt very comfortable with what was going to be called and when it was going to be called and why it was going to be called. When you go – six and seven formations, does that kind of then limit, you know, maybe your personnel, hey, we're going to be 
an 11 personnel team and, and maybe we'll change it up and say you're, you're 12. So maybe like two personnel groupings at, at the most, or is that something he would still kind of, you know, mix and match, obviously knowing, you know, what you have each year, but would he yeah. pretty much stick with one personnel grouping for the most part and then kind of twinkle in another one? It was, it was, so at Fordham, we were kind of built to be 11 personnel the whole time we were there in all reality. So 11 was, you know, so we had, you know, we carried our three, your three generic, you know, your, your, your two by two, three by one, and your knuckle by one, um, um, uh, 11 personal formations. And, and that's always what we game plan first. That was kind of our, our wheelhouse, you know, and then 10 personnel was, we might carry, you know, either, either or two by two or three by one, but usually not both. Uh, we didn't do a ton of 10 personnel in all reality, but we did it, but not like, not a ton. And then honestly, our second, um, for most time that I was there, our second highest personnel grouping, or I'm sorry, third highest personnel grouping was zero one personnel. You know, we would, we would go empty with the tight end because uh, that gave you essentially, you know, um, the ability to run, you know, quarterback run game, quarterback RPO, that kind of stuff. Um, it, it, we, we would at times, so 12 wasn't really a big thing for us. Now, I, I, know, it, I, I know at Penn State they evolved and 12 became a bigger part of what they did because of personnel. Um, it was never like the feature, but it was a bigger part. Um, but even looking at their Penn State stuff, when, even when they were in 12, they were still primarily in 11 formations, just in 12 personnel. Um, we would get to some 12 a little bit, you know, in some of your coming out situations or third and short, we wanted to have, to have some wider edges. And we actually had, it wasn't until probably the very, very end of, our, of my time there, which was 2014 was my last season there, where we actually had a second tight end that we felt, you know, um, was good enough to at least go in a game and not get somebody hurt. Um, so we used it a little bit in 2014, but part in 2012 and 13, I don't think we did any 12 personnel. And if we did, it was very, very little. So yeah, so to, to answer your question, it, 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 I guess it does kind of limit you a little bit. Um, but again, it's all about like our guys felt really, really good about doing those handful of things. And then obviously tempo is a part of it and dictating tempo and that kind of stuff. You know, you gotta play with that as well. Um, and then probably the other thing that I didn't mention in terms of what makes Joe kind of really good and what it makes his offense go is, is then you have the ability to make a lot of your stuff look similar, right? So, you know, all your play actions, all your, like, mm-hmm. we were, were very, very, very deliberate with, with, you know, making everything look the same as much as possible, you know, until obviously the ball broke or whatever, you know? Um, but that was, uh, you know, talking to the other guys on defense, both on our staff and other staffs after, after I left, after guys got dropped, if we played them, they, that was something that they would comment on was how much how much of a pain in the butt it was to game plan because it all kind of looked the same in a lot of ways, which I think was a big compliment. So, coach, talking about having that that play that that you you know the whole team and I and I've never heard anyone put it the way you did with hey it's third and one you took a poll with your top eleven and and I love that I, I've never heard it said that way but um, I think that's an, an a great you know analogy or or way to pose that. Um, question to yourself as a coach so obviously I'm sure at each at each school you've been at it's been a little bit different and it depends on the personnel but um, what as an offensive line coach what do you feel um, is has been at least up until now in your career has been the most um, you know that third and one play for you that the run play that you feel like you know you can go into a game it can be very multiple depending on uh, you know, different tags and different things that you do, but something that you want to rep up until, you know, like I said, up to now in your career that, that you feel really comfortable about and that you, uh, you know, like to get a lot of reps at every year because you think it is such a, uh, you know, a quality scheme for, for the way that you coach it. Well, I think um, if I can cheat and I can say two things. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Absolutely. Um, um, and, I, it, of course, it, it all comes back to, you know, who, who you are. Mm-hmm the line coach, but who you are as an offense, right, as a program and kind of what and how you build. When I was at Bryant, we were a 21, 12, 13 personnel, grind you out, shorten the game, and win ugly. And, and we won. I think we were I think we were seven and four, three out of the four years I was there. I think we were six and five or five and six, whatever it was. So, you know, for that program, you know, in the first four years of moving up from Division II to FCS, that's really good. Um, and we had, you know, way less scholarships and, and issues with – missions that our conference didn't have. So we were kind of behind the eight ball to begin with. 
Um, so I think our head coach built it right because he kind of we weren't going to be as talented, as fast, or as athletic. So we kind of we were like the Stanford of, of of that level of football. You know, we were just physical as shit and 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 tough and everything. So at Bryant, it was it was two back power, and and I felt I don't know that we, I, I don't know that I've ever had players block anything as well as my guys at Bryant by year three and four block two back power. Mm-hmm. I mean. It, unreal we could we could run it literally we can call it blindly into almost any any blitz any movement any front we, we, I mean our guys were so comfortable with it and I got so many at bats at it and it didn't matter and we were really and we had a good back that was really good at running it which always always helps obviously you know um and and, and that was it that was our baby now be, that is a very expensive play when you run it as much as we did you know um and the issue that we ran into was I don't think we ran anything else really worth a lick. You know, you know, we ran a little bit of ISO and a little bit of pin and pull, but nothing was even remotely as good as, as we blocked power. Um, now, at pretty much everywhere I've been since then, but especially at Fordham and now at, at FIU, we're an inside, we are inside zone teams, okay? Um, we don't even really have we, – we didn't have two-back power in the offense or even one-back power in the offense at Fordham. You know, reality is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, but we, we, we blocked inside zone, whether it was split zone or zone read or just traditional zone, the backside cut off, whatever it was inside zone, tight zone was kind of our baby. And, and we, I don't know, I don't think we ever actually blocked inside zone at Fordham as well as we blocked power at Bryan, but we blocked it pretty damn well, you know? And so that was our, so, you know, and at FIU were kind of similar. Um, so I would, I would say as of right, right now, uh, it would be inside zone for me. Um, but to, to, to kind of continue on my thought process, the beauty of kind of being a little bit more spread oriented and having more diversity in the offense that, uh, that we had at Fordham, which is very, very similar to how we are at FIU right now. Um, you know, although we didn't block, and even at FIU, I, I don't know that we'll ever block, again, inside zone as well if we block power at, at, at Bryant, right? But whatever our second best run is. So, you know, at, at, at Fordham, it was, it was, um, it was tackle rap, you know, at FIU it's counter as of last year. Right. Okay. We for sure block our second best run play way better than we block our second best run play at, at Bryant. And in our reality, we probably block our third best run play better than we blocked our second best run play at Bryant. So we have more diversity, we, you know, we're more omnivorous. We do more things well, not just special, but just one thing as much. And I think that's given us a little more success. Coach, when you you know you talk about having the the two run plays, you know, when do you kind of think, man, it's time to go away from you know say inside zones, you know the fastball or our number one. When is it something where you you kind of want to go away from that? You know, what are some things maybe you're seeing from defenses that that man like you know we need to kind of go to our our second pitch here. Uh, you know, formationally. It, is, is, is the biggest thing I would say, right? You know, so, you know, how are they defending, you know, the C-gap, especially to the, you know, if you're two-by-one to the field, you know, and dub two-by-one, you know, how are they accounting for that field C-gap? Are they, you know, are they are they playing the game with that field five technique and the, and, and the walked out Sam linebacker where they're canceling the B-gap and trying to spill the ball outside? Because that could be a pain in the butt sometimes in the inside zone, you know? Um, and, and that's where you want to get into your, you know, your tackle wrap stuff or your, power read stuff or, you know, your off tackle stuff to that side, um, you know, or, or wide zone if you're a wide zone team or whatever it may be. Um, so to, to me, it's not necessarily what are they doing because very few defenses nowadays in college football just do one thing to every, it's all formation based really, you know what I mean? Cause obviously you have tendencies by formation where your backs line and so on and so forth. Um, but, but, but again, and I keep going back to it, like we are going to make you stop inside zone. And then even when you do it, we're going to make you keep on doing it. Because that's one of those, just like power, you know, if you're a power, if you're a gap scheme team, that's one of those things that just you got you to gotta keep on kind of hammering and hammering and hammering. All of a sudden, you know, it just takes one or two once to pop. And that could be the difference in the game right there. Coach, are, are you guys, do you do any tempo inside zone? Do you run it, you know, to and away from a, a tight end? Do you call those <laughs> two things differently? Um, how, do, how does that work, those couple yeah, of things? So, the answer to your question is yes to everything. Uh, so, so, <laughs> so, so we will, we will run inside zone. Um, that'll probably be the one that we run the most, honestly, out of tempo because we feel the best about it. Right. We, you know, we feel like our, our guys can pretty much block it 
in theory, they'll be comfortable having a chance to block it versus whatever you throw in front of us. Um, so, so yes, we will definitely run it from tempo, um, from all, from, from any one of our tempos, you know, our fastest tempo to our double count tempo to our, you know, our, our dummy count tempo, whatever it may be. Um, and we will run it to the short side. We'll run it to uh, the field, the boundary, to a tight end surface, to a two man surface with the tight end as a slice guy. Right. Um, uh, in, in all those scenarios. And this is actually the first time. And I actually like it a lot. This is the first offense I've been in. And our, I, I got to give credit. Our, our coordinator, Rich Sprosky, um, is, is like the man. He's awesome. And he's a great guy to work for. He's actually a former line coach himself. So he runs a very, very line friendly offense, which I, I'm very, very thankful for. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Like when, when, when you read the stats the last couple of years, and I think FIU's allowed like 21 sacks total in the last two years. Um, I mean, that's obviously, you know, good quarterback play, good line play, but a lot of that's really good play calling too by, 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 by Rich. Um, so, but anyways, um, so this, this is the first time I've been in a system where we've actually told the line and the play call. We've had, we've had a tag uh, to the play that tells them we're wanting to play to a two-man surface or a three-man surface. Because obviously, you know, perimeter pressure and looks and stuff, you got to know whether you have help out there or not. Sometimes mm-hmm. that guy – is off the line, you, you don't know if he's there or not. So we just take the, the catch we have it and add a tag to the front of the play the play call that tells us it's a two-man service play or a three-man service play, which I like a lot because I, I think it, it, it eliminates um, some of the, uh, the confusion and thought process, especially for younger players. Um, you know, at, at, at Fordham, we had to know it was the same play call. It was a two, two or three-man service, and we had to know whether it was going to the boundary or field, just the tackle had to tell us when we got up there. Because if it was to the field, we treat it as a as a uh, a three man surface play because we always handle the overhang or whatever was out there with RPO or whatnot. And if it was in the boundary, we would always you know treat it as a two man surface play hmm. and without to any kind of edge pressure or whatever out there. You know, especially in, in your three four looks. Um, I I like this a lot. It just it helps you play faster. It helps you be more consistent, and it, it just it, it's more um, it's clearer and easier to learn for for my guys, which I'm always I'm all for. That's exactly right. We went to that last year, and and it's benefited our guys so much. So so obviously, just listening, and especially even on on all these webinars and different things that have been going around these last few months, there's seems like twenty seven thousand different ways that that guys you know get through and block inside zone with you know either mic points or there's a numbering system that that guy the count system, and then there's you know cover uncovered. There's you know, stay through your tracks. There's, there's a bunch of different ways guys get through that. How, how, how do you guys, you know, what is your, not every rule, but what is your majority rule? How are you guys getting it blocked? And then how does that change when you guys go tempo? Because to me, that's, that's where it gets difficult because you get used to calling all these double teams. And now we go tempo and the defense isn't set. Uh, and, and now we've got to be able to execute there, which sometimes is even harder than, than if they would just get set and we would know where they were. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right with that. We so I've always been um, in the covered uncovered uh, principle world. Um, it's not. It doesn't have. It doesn't answer everything. Obviously, you have to know who the, who the mic point is and who the mic. You know, we we call it the plus or minus off of that. You know, um, you have to have some awareness of that. Um, but but in terms of just our base day one rules, um, I've always taught it as covered uncovered. Um, and, and the one thing I do, and that, not just for, for inside zone, for inside zone, mid zone, wide zone, gap scheme plays, whatever it may be. Um, and, and I, I probably grew to this after maybe 2012, 2013. Um, is, so those are, those are our, our, our main schemes, right? You have tight zone, mid zone, wide zone, gap schemes, right? Okay. Because um, we, 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 we've not been a huge pin and pull team uh, other places I've been before. Actually, we were last year in Miami, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> um, so, so um, what I what I've always done is is I've always pushed for the installation schedule to go by scheme, right? To go by concept. So, you know, we would install all of our inside. So, if we're an inside zone team, day one run game, let's install all of our base inside zones. And I, I, I say base that could be zone, zone, zone read, zone slice. Two-man surface, three-man, whatever. All the base ways we can possibly run inside zone. With speed feedback, so if you want to add that, whatever, that's up to the coordinator. But I want to get as much inside zone work as I possibly can in day one install. And then when I go to – as I install that, and this is even going back to, you know, January, February, or more so February, sorry, 
in the off-season study, right, I like to make a, you know, six or seven power, uh, slide, uh, uh, slide PowerPoint that truly explains what, so let's take it, say it's inside zone, what is inside zone? Because, you know, as coaches, we talk, you know, in these words, in, you know, tight zone, inside zone, whatever, whatever we said, gap schemes. But 90% of the kids don't know what the hell that means. And we kind of, and, and, and even at our level, you know, they come to us, you know, at, at, the, at the college level. And, you know, some of these guys have had, you know, four different line coaches in the fours that were in high school, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And, and some of those guys, you know, God bless them, they're, they're doing the best they can, but they're not necessarily, you know, they're, they're not like professional coaches. They're, you know, they're police officers or they're security, right. you know, school workers or whatever. So they're not going to have, have as much detail when they do in a lot of cases as we are. Um, so we have to, and, and, and even if they do come from wall coach programs, what, you know, what St. Thomas Aquinas in Fort Lauderdale calls inside zone might be different from what we do at FIU. Mm-hmm. So you have, to, you have to get them to speak your language. Um, so we have these PowerPoints that we use, and we got to go nuts to bolts with what it – so when we say inside zone, what does that mean to you? And that, that goes to, like, what is the back's track? What is his aiming point? What is his read spot? Okay, what's going to make him cut back? What's going to make him bounce? Um, How is it going to affect, you know, what you do? Um, if he does jump cut, how is he going to get back on his track after that? I mean, we go into – I mean, we, we dive deep into it now, okay? And, and, and so and then we go play side, you know, point of attack blocking, you know, play side covered, uncovered, uh, you know, backside covered, uncovered, um, and then awareness of where the mic points are and then where the pluses or minuses are based off of that. Um, so it's, you know, we try to make it as detailed as possible. It's kind of tedious. Um, you know, by the time we get to year three, year four, you know, your older guys are tired of seeing that damn same PowerPoint because it, it just doesn't change very much usually. <laughs> Um, and, and that's usually when I'll, I'll have those guys try to teach it and keep them engaged. Um, but, but I love that because it's funny, I just, we, we had a joint clinic with Austin P cause you know, Tim Zetz is the coordinator there. He was on staff with us at Fordham and, and, uh, Eddie Morris is your line coach is a really good football coach. He was not on staff with us, but he was at Princeton and they ran a very similar system. I mean, Eddie are really good friends. We've always exchanged ideas and talked ball back and forth. And, and so we had a joint clinic, um, with them, um, a couple this was last week, and you know, I you know, we talked inside zone, and, and I pulled up that PowerPoint, and he was like, "Man, that's really cool." They said, "Send me that," because you know, again, it just you have you can't assume that they know because they don't know, and even even if they do know, they don't know what you want them to, to, to what it means to you, and, um, and so so we do that with inside zone, with mid zone, with the wide zone, and then with 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 you know, cap scheme counter, um, and we even do it with with, with with um with our five and six men uh, uh drop back protections as well okay coach so um that's so funny that you bring that up because it, it does sound like you know kind of routine or like why would we need to go over this but probably my two biggest arguments ever was being confused and one of them was the difference in mid zone and inside zone and and we both had it was you know i i had a coordinator and and we called it you know to us, mid-zone was like midline zone. So we had midline zone, then we had inside zone, which was a little bit wider, like a B-gap zone, and then we had outside zone or wide zone. And then, uh, you know, the new coordinator came in, but, but you know, so I just assumed that was kind of how everyone had it, but he said it a different way, and it made sense to me too, but his was inside zone was like A-gap zone. Mid-zone was like in, in the middle of inside and outside zones. So it was like the B gap zone and then he had outside zone. So it's funny that you bring that up because um, I have, I've been in that, not arguments, not the right word, but I've been in that, that confusion when, when a guy just comes in uh, and it would be really easy to have. And we both kind of understood what we were talking about, but we were completely flipped with how we were calling the zones. And then I had a coach in college and uh, our offensive line and him got in an argument probably for, 20 minutes in, in a meeting about whether over a defender or under was a defender was, you know, towards his toes or towards heels. He, he said that under a defender was, you know, like the heel line of the defender. And we said that was over the defender. And so, um, you know, two things that seem like they should be really, really easy. But uh, if guys aren't on the same page on that, everything gets really thrown off. Yeah, 100%. It, it, it's funny because – and I don't – like when I heard this, uh, you know, I think it was back in 2000 and maybe 2013, 2012, 24, someone that in that, that time frame, that, that was when, when, when coach Bielema was at Arkansas and they were kind of rolling pretty good. Um, 
and and he was he would always you know talk about uh, you know he wanted his players to speak Hoganese because they were the hogs, right? You know, and and what what, what Hoganese was was their their language, right? It was you know what they called whatever they called whatever, what they called the underfront, what they called the overfront, what they called you know a three down front, what they called the power play, whatever it was. And he talked about, you know, they have a language in their building that they speak and they needed all their players to speak the same language. And that's culturally as well as it is, you know, X's and O's. Um, and when I heard him say that, I was like, well, that's, that's, that makes a lot of sense because it's kind of what we're all trying to do, whether we realize it or not, you know. But, you know, I've always tried to take the approach that, you know, you have to assume when you're taking a new job or, or when you're getting a, a, you know, a new freshman or a new transfer walk through the door, you have to assume – and and. I don't mean to sound like crude and say this, they don't, they don't know anything because they know a lot, obviously. Right. And it's important to not, not let, to not let guys forget all the ball they've known already. They've learned already once they get to you because then they become robots. Um, but it's important that you assume that they don't know anything about how you want it done or how you're going to describe it. And that you teach them that way. Um, and that's not, that's not necessarily saying that, they, that they're dumb, but they can't learn. It's just, it's making sure that you don't take anything for granted. That's the biggest thing. Coach, rolling up now. I was talking. I was on, on mute. <laughs> rolling up now kind of kind of around an hour. I got to stay on mute all the time. I got Now we've got three dogs, and all they do is bark all the time. Oh, wow. So, so we would have uh, – yeah, well, it was, you know, it was the, the COVID. We were inside, and I got two little kids and, and uh, nothing to do. And we decided a, a, a dog would be a good entertainment system, and it has been. But uh, <laughs> it's been loud and, and not, not a ton of sleep. But – uh, anyways, kind of rolling up on an hour. And, and the thing that I always like to ask guys before we let them go is um, when you're watching another team's offensive line, what's some things they'd be doing that would make you think highly of their offensive line, Coach? I tell you, it's funny because there's, there's two main things that, that always jump out to me. And, and one, is, one is in the run game and one is in the pass pro, but they're both kind of the same. Um, it's those players' ability to stay square to stay square, you know, whether you're running zones and pass pro, when you're in drop-back protection, you got to pass off twist games or movement or you got to mirror guys, the ability to stay square because that is such a, a, a developable, uh, this is probably not a word, but a developable <laughs> trait. Um, you know, it's something that, that, that you have to drill. It's not, to me, offensive line is all about muscle memory, right? Okay, because we are teaching our guys, we're training our guys to, to move their body right, into positions and places that, that, that their bodies are not really meant to move naturally, right? I mean, you, you don't walk the halls, you know, in duck demeanor, right, okay? <laughs> right. Back, right, okay, right, you don't, you don't, um, you know, your body's natural reaction to, like, getting, you know, someone shoving your shoulder is to open up and turn. That's natural, right? You're, and then it's our job as line coaches to train their bodies to fight that pressure with pressure, stay sports, not turn, to, you know, keep your shoulder pads over the knees and stay low or, you know, flat back or whatever, however you coach that. So, you know, when I see guys that, you know, can stay square and play, you know, north and south, and I, I can read their, their, their name and numbers across the tight copy um, in both run and pass, to me that's – because that is something that has to be drilled. It has to be, has to be drilled. It has to be talked about. It has to be preached. It has to be, you know, harped upon. It has to be priority. Um, and, and when you see guys do that, despite what's happening around the movement and blitzers and, and twists and, you know, front stems and whatnot, um, that to me is a is a – a sign of a very well coached offensive line, and, I, and I've I've actually gone up to line coaches pregame, postgame, or, or, or during recruiting, you know, pumping guys in the road and being like, "Hey, man, like you know, you guys get to help a job, man. You guys, they swear, you guys, you know, physical guys, you know, you know well, well coached, and, and I like watching you guys on film." So that's kind of my answer to that. Coach, man, love the answer. This literally, this hour absolutely flew by. Holy cow! Look up at the clock, and it seems like we've been talking <laughs> for ten minutes, man. So. Appreciate you taking the time, and like I said, it was it was a blast, and, and hopefully we get a chance to uh, to do it again soon. And and better believe we get out to uh, the east side there in Florida, we'll be uh, we'll be stopping by. It's a cool place. Uh, one other thing, make sure you tell DJ McCarthy I said what's up. I definitely will do. Yeah, I definitely. I got to spend some some good time with DJ in uh, Las Vegas and on the camp circuit for a while. So he's a okay. good dude. He's we're, we're very happy to have him, man. He, he's he found our lap. Uh, he, he actually just was hired, I think, the day before I was, maybe, or probably two days before I was. So we're, we're kind of the newbies on staff. So we're hanging, we're hanging out a little bit. And that's going to do it 
For this episode of RTP, we want to again thank all of our sponsors. You guys, make sure and go check them out. Help grow our community by telling other coaches about Run the Power. And if you enjoy Running the Power, go get your shirt, long sleeve, or hoodie at runthepower.com. Also, if you have any topics or any questions you would like for us to discuss in the next podcast, simply rate our podcast and then leave a comment in the writer review section of the podcast app. This will help our podcast rating as well as it will allow us to answer the questions you all want answered. Make sure and go check out our blog at runthepower.com. Follow me on Twitter at Harper underscore Coach and Coach Walls at Coach Brady Walls. Run the Power now also has its own Twitter and Instagram, and you can find that at Run the Power. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. Talk to you soon.